0: I'm Teresa Huff, former special ed teacher turned grant writer and nonprofit strategist. In my 20 years of freelancing, I've helped nonprofits triple their funding and exponentially increase their reach. Now I'm stepping up to mentor freelancers and nonprofit leaders like you who are ready to take your skills to the next level. It's time to get intentional about your vision so you can create lasting change in your community. Learn the skills and strategies you need to become the grant writer the world needs. Let's do this. Before we get started today, nonprofits and grant writers often ask me where they can find grants. So I tell them about Instrumental. Instrumental makes my grant searching process go so much faster. It has so many features and data right there, and they'll even walk you through setting it up to help you get the most out of the system. Instrumental brings all your grant prospecting, tracking, and ongoing management under one roof. In fact, I partnered with Instrumental to give you a free two-week trial and $50 off your first month. Go to Teresahuff.com slash instrumental that's instrument with an L and use the code GWSPOD to start your free trial. That's TeresaHuff.com slash instrumental. Go give it a try. Hey friends, if you are interested in grant writing, I want to invite you to join me on the fast track to grant writer in this 90 day coaching program. I'll help you learn the skills you need to level up your grant writing career. You can start today at TeresaHuff.com slash VIP. Lately, we have been talking about being a go-giver and the book, The Go-Giver, and how this mindset shift can change not only your own life, but also the people around you. A couple of weeks ago, I talked with the co-author, Bob Berg, and I highly recommend you listen to that interview. He had such down-to-earth wisdom and practical advice for shifting your mindset, and we specifically talked about how that applies in the context of nonprofit work. Today, I have another treat for you. I'm talking with the other co-author, John David Mann, and his wife, Anna Gabriel Mann, who also have partnered together to write The Go-Giver Marriage. These two are just the most delightful couple, and I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. Now, we are talking about The Go-Giver Marriage, which they graciously let me read a copy and it's a fantastic little book. And it just like The Go-Giver, has such practical, actionable takeaways. Whether you're married or not, this has good tips for relationships in general. And really, it's about changing yourself. And so I highly recommend you also read this book. But I can't wait to introduce you to this couple because they are just delightful. John David Mann is the co-author of more than 30 books, including four New York Times bestsellers and five national bestsellers. So with that wisdom, he also shares quite a bit of writing tips with us, too, in case you writers or grant writers are listening out there. The 2008 parable, The Go-Giver, that you've heard us talk about quite a bit, that he co-authored with Bob Berg, earned the 2017 Living Now Book Awards Evergreen Medal for its contribution to positive global change. They have created a worldwide movement with this little parable. His wife, Anna Gabriel Mann, earned her degree in clinical psychology before going on to serve as an educator, therapist, corporate trainer, speaker, and coach. She currently coaches Go Giver Marriage clients and leads the Go Giver Marriage coaches training program, and she trains coaches from around the globe. She also has vast experience in working with nonprofits and has a great perspective that she shares in the interview as well. This interview speaks for itself without further ado, here you go. Anna and John, welcome. I'm so happy to have you guys. I've been excited to sit down and talk with you. Tell us a random fact about yourselves.
1: A random fact about me is I played the cello in my childhood, and my plan was to be a concert cellist. And I obviously did not become, I I did originally, I started out actually in my adult life as a concert cellist, but got sidetracked into so many other things, and it turned out that I was a writer.
0: Very cool. And do you still play?
1: I really don't. Not very frequently. I, I, I play in my head constantly. You know, there's music always going in there. But no, I've really put down the bow and picked up the pen.
0: That's a fair trade-off, I'd say. Anna, how about you? A random fact about me
2: is that I was a modern dancer, a professional modern dancer in my 20s and lived abroad and danced. And also um, then when I left the career of dancing or the profession. I went on to go to graduate school in dual major of dance movement therapy and clinical psychology and counseling. So I, I kind of took my love of movement into my work.
0: I love how both your backgrounds incorporated a different type of art completely and how that still incorporates into your work. Yeah. That's yes. intriguing, I think that's important for people that have hobbies or random talents like that to still bring it in and have that outlet
1: you know it fertilizes your brain and the way you think about things the way you see things i mean i was I didn't mention this aside from being a cellist, I was also a composer and i i was i mean I was really into being a composer I had stuff performed in in venues all over the world, and I won some awards for composing and that, that was a big thing for me. I haven't composed in decades but my writing is completely informed by my sense of musical composition. And I think that's true for both of us. I think that's true for everybody, actually. The, the interests and pursuits, and you say, as you say, hobbies, avocations, the skills and talents that you develop, they inform everything else that you do. You know, they're not just side things you do. They're, they're central things you do.
0: That's true. We tend to separate into boxes, but it's really not. And you just kind of went from one type of composing to another instead yeah. of notes, it's words.
2: Yeah, exactly. And I exactly. actually believe that the arts actually teach structure in a different level because when you are extremely organized enough in your body to do some kind of really exotic movement, you have to have a certain sense of structure to understanding exactly how that movement takes off, goes through the middle to the end, like a like a skater taking off on a big triple jump. Mm -hmm. You know, she has to know exactly or he has to know exactly what foot they're leaving the ground on and exactly how that movement goes. Well when you learn structure in any of the arts, it informs everything you do. So as a writer, structure is extremely important. And Mm -hmm. the design of our book is that the first half of the book is a parable. And the second half of the book is called The Practice. And one is a sweet story with a fable inside of the parable that illustrates the concepts. But the second half, The Practice, concretizes the whole thing and puts it into action.
0: I love that comparison because I often say that grant writing is both an art and a science. It really takes a mix of both of that logic, data, factual information but also knowing when to bring in the creativity and the tug at the heartstrings emotion. Yeah. And I feel like you all have done a wonderful balance of that in the book too because the first part I mean it was mesmerizing entertaining but then the second part you referred back to it and it did cement those concepts even more because it was connected to the story.
2: Yep. The thing about grant writing is grant writing is like proposal writing for a book. That's what I was going to the- The proposal for this book was 26 or 28 pages long. And when you do a proposal for a publisher, you have to put every element of who all the other books are that are like your book, you know, comparisons and why your book is, has a place in the marketplace. You have to give its unique proposition. You have to spell out your entire marketing plan. I mean, it's really complex and, our agent actually gives our proposal from this book to other authors to emulate.
1: And yeah, so that's used as a model. Yeah. 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 That, that it's, you know, there's a, there's a piece of this book that the readers will never see. Exactly what I was talking about. And that's the proposal that came before the book. And, and, and you know, I've, I've published over 30 books. And shh, I'm telling my dog to be quiet. And every one of those books was preceded by a book proposal and and the proposal is you know this is a piece of the, of the of the author's skill that that readers mostly are, are not aware of in addition to writing the book you need to be able to write all the ancillary material that packages the book and i use package in the best sense there's the book proposal in which you need to typically kind of lay out for the for the publishers What's the book about? You know, what, give me the experience of it from A to Z. Uh, who's the market? Who's the audience? So you know, you're you're having to be kind of a, uh, have a business head at the same time you have a creative head, and then after the book is done, you also need to create material that's going to go on Amazon, the book description material that's going to go to go to retailers. You're creating all this ancillary material around the book, which is, you know, a lot of writers think well. You know, I, I write the book. I don't want to be involved in selling it. No, 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 no. That's that's part of it. It's part of the creative process. It's just a different facet of the process. It's the entrepreneurial aspect of the process.
2: And similar to a nonprofit, which has many different facets to whatever you're doing to promote and whatever you're doing, like if you're having a gala, you not only have to have a list that you're trying to engage to come to the gala, but you've got to get invitations out. You've got to have the venue all set up. You've got to have social media pages going. There has to be good content going on those social media pages. You know, it's very similar in the sense that whether it's a book or a nonprofit, there's a marketing arm to it that really has to be real. There has to be a really good looking website. There has to be ways that people understand why do they want to give to this nonprofit? Who exactly is it serving? And those are the things that when you're marketing a book or proposing a book to a publisher, you have to make those all black and white and extremely clear.
0: That is so true. And both the book proposal process and the grant process are highly competitive, it sounds like. I mean, I haven't been through it, obviously, as extensively as you all, but (laughs) the competition is fierce.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. It's fiercer than ever because the marketplace is just flooded. And and I, I don't have the experience that, that Anna does in the, the nonprofit world, or certainly that you do. But I, I know that for publishing, it's much easier for a publisher to say no than yes. And going into it cold, they would much rather say no than yes, because no is a lot safer. You're not going to ruin your career by turning a book down, but you could you could really have a problem by, by saying yes to a book that then bombs and costs you. Know. And, and so you're going into it with the dice are loaded against you. So you have to really go over the top with being accurate in what you're doing, what Anna's describing.
2: Yeah. And also in grant writing, to take it back there, because I've written grants for nonprofits, you have to have a very real emotional hook at the front of your grant that speaks exactly to the clients that you serve. A story or something that summarizes the reason why this need is great And why you really want this particular funder to understand why it's so critical that you receive this funding. And so, you know, one of the nonprofits that I was part of served soldiers who had returned from abroad and who had PTSD. And they happened to be special operators. So they're a unique class all by themselves. And yet, one of the things that people don't realize about special operators who have PTSD or any soldier that has PTSD is the the entire family has PTSD. And so who we were really serving was the families, because the soldier with PTSD is often not employable. And so mom is pulling the weight or dad, depending on the situation. And it really puts the kids in a unique position of having Uh, a parent and and all kinds of trauma is generational. And as a therapist, that's one of the things that I really understand. And I understand it firsthand because of my father's experiences in World War II. So I share that only because that was the emotional hook that we would put at the beginning of any grant was helping people to understand that ballet classes might not happen. Soccer might not happen because those are all extras now. It's not like 20 or 30 years ago when you could be part of the soccer team at no cost. Now you've got to buy these uniforms and pay to get in. And, you know, so parents that are under the kind of stresses like that can't afford it.
0: Mm-hmm. Not to mention the logistics and shuttling kids to practices and all the events and coordinating when maybe you're both strapped for time and working. And
2: Yeah, maybe mom's uh, strapped for time and dad still can't drive. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, so when you explain, you know, taking that time and that's really in a book proposal, you know, it's the same really explaining the details of why this is a significant topic and how, who it's going to reach, what your audience is.
0: Right. And I try to convey the importance of thinking like the reviewer. They have so many Grant applications to weed through. And they are looking for reasons to chuck some out the door. <laughs> same with book proposals. Whereas if you can be more competitive, think through those stories, make sure your facts are in order, everything lined up, you can be much more competitive. And I'm sure yours is the same way. So I'm curious, I've read your background as to how this came about, and it's been a long time brewing, but why now? Why do you feel like this is a really impactful time in history for this book to hit the shelves
1: you know we started writing this after COVID started and the for the first well let's just say two years roughly two years when when the the world was intermittently in lockdown or semi-lockdown or going through various phases of its of its uh, you know self-incarceration we we were just Anna and me and our dog in our little house, <laughs> which is not that uncomfortable for the two of us because we work at home anyway. And, and we, we tend to leave a, a very, a very quiet at home life. You know, we used to do a lot of traveling to speak and a lot of travel to work with corporations and so forth. But we, we have a more sedate life now because I write from home, she writes from home, we work from home. It's great. But what we saw happening in the world around us was just heartbreaking. Aside from the obvious, People dying, long haulers being ill for a for long, long times and kids, you know, missing out on education and, and people being decimated financially, economically. Obvious things. Also, people were under such stress domestically because people were suddenly at home. And suddenly there was the four walls and the two of us and we're looking at each other and we never planned to spend this much time together. <laughs> yes, we love each other, but we're, we're getting cabin fever.
0: <laughs> it's a
1: it is a test and a lot of people flunked the test. A lot of people really had a hard time. We have friends who are who are active therapists as well as Anna who who will tell us that, you know, they're way more busier than they've ever been before. We had a we did a podcast a couple of days ago with a, with a fellow whose wife is a psychotherapist or a social worker, and she said that she got into it part-time just before COVID. And now she's double full-time. There's no way she could be part-time. Our agent told us, you can't book an appointment with a psychiatrist in New York City unless you want to go three years out. People are screaming for help because they are, their relationships, their marriages, their families are under such historic stress. So we felt like, as you know, because you've the background, we wanted to do this book for nearly 20 years. It was an idea that Anna had back when the first co-giver was, was just an apple in, in our eye. That's not the right expression, but you know what I mean gleam in our twinkle in our eye (laughs) um this felt like the time people need it more than ever so you know if if not now when so we wrote the book during COVID we sold the book to a publisher during COVID we published it and it just it just came out a few weeks ago so it felt like the right time
2: the other reason that we feel strongly about it hitting the market now is that while there's a lot of marriage books out there a lot of them are sort of theoretically complex and They don't necessarily address, in simple terms, the things that will destroy your marriage and the things that can build your marriage. And so the five secrets are really five habits that when you enact them, they will counteract the five deadliest behaviors. And so each secret has an opposite, and that opposite, as we were talking about before we got on the air that opposite will just take down a marriage. You know, It will be so destructive and so damaging. And a lot of the opposites are things that people do every day. They do them very unconsciously because when we marry, we often are attracted to somebody who carries a similar behavior to our least functional parent. And it's an effort or an attempt, if you will, to heal something at a very, very early age. And so we are often attracted to people who will bring up our childhood issues or our our childhood emotional history. And so what happens when the honeymoon wears off is that all of a sudden this emotional baggage, if you will, starts unpacking. And the dynamic of the marriage shifts as people become more critical, more controlling, more codependent. And these are, you know, that's just a small handful, but these five destructive behaviors are all things that are, that if you be, can become aware of them and have habits that shift to the opposite of them, you can not only build your marriage in a deep way, but you can build the intimacy of your marriage in a way that you're just unshakable. And, you know, the parable format is so sweet and it and it carries such a powerful ability to you know to tell a story that's real that that really hits and then the practice side kind of puts it in simple terms of like you know this, these are things that you can do every day just three times a day this or that and that will have a transformative effect and lastly that it really isn't about two people having to work on the marriage as much as it's about working on yourself. Because a lot of the baggage that we all carry, it's our baggage. And yes, we're bringing it into the marriage. It is part of the dynamic of the marriage. And yeah, it's ideal if both both parties read it. But at the same time, one person can practice the secrets and totally change the tone of their marriage.
0: That was one thing that stood out to me is how practical it is and how one person could do it like each person could do it alone they could both do it together, but even if just one person starts making an effort towards the steps, it can make all the difference in the world to so just start that yes. momentum
1: absolutely and because that's practically speaking that's frequently how it is i mean that that often is the situation where you'll have one member of the couple feeling more urgent about taking some steps. Like we we need to we need to change something. I just feel like we need to we need to uh you know get back to how we used to be or move forward or some they feel more of a sense of the need to to make changes where the other partner may be like I'm stressed out about my work. I can't even deal with that. I don't want to think about it. They might be in denial about it, whatever. You frequently have that. And that's okay because people are are not identical. You know they're not twins. They're they're two different people. So part of the big problem with 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 or the big challenge, I guess I'll say, with marriage, classical marriage therapy is getting both people in the room. And then the other big challenge with classical marriage therapy is once you get them both in the room, get them both to be willing participants in the room. <laughs> and that do not yeah. know what happened. I've been in that room. I know that experience. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the I, and, I, that's, and finger pointing. Yeah, oh, yeah,
2: exactly. Yeah. It's very real that often one person really want to work, wants to work on the marriage, and often that person has real distinct ideas about what's wrong. Yeah. But it doesn't mean they're right about what's wrong. But the other person is either ambivalent or dragging their heels
1: or defensive. Yeah. You know they feel like uh they're like they're going to have fingers pointed at them. They don't even want to walk in that door. Right.
0: Yeah, and that's one thing that I like about the whole Go Giver series is that we can take responsibility for our own actions and we can be responsible for making a difference with the things within our control and kind of letting go of other people's behavior, other people's reactions to things. We can choose to make a difference in those key areas. And that seems to be a common theme, obviously throughout the books, but it just makes it more of, okay, what can I do to make a difference? Which is kind of, I mean, the whole nonprofit realm People are here because they're caring, giving people, and they want to make a difference in the world, but yet it's all messy. It overlaps. So we have to take it all into account and make sure we're taking care of ourselves too and coming from that perspective as well.
2: Absolutely. Really well said, because I think in the nonprofit world, you know, it's it's very entrepreneurial. So you really have to be willing to take action and take responsibility And also, I think the go giver concept, you know, of all the books, as you said, is really about acts of generosity. And it's funny because I have found both in fundraising for nonprofits that, you know, how you are interacting with the client, with the person who could conceivably give a gift to your nonprofit, is so powerful and so important. And if you're in the, like, you know, I'm just here because I want you to write a check, state of mind, they not only know it, but they don't, they're, they're going to drag their heels as well yes. because they want the decision to be theirs and you need to be really, really chill and really capable of being a go-giver in the situation rather than a go-taker.
0: Right. And I've often said there's a person on the other side of everything you write, whether it's a grant application, a book like this, an email, anything. It's a person. It's not an ATM machine. It's not a blank check. It's a person. And it's so important to build that relationship and care about the person first and then build into those other pieces. But building that trust is so important
1: you know the, the in the original Goalgiver, giver there's this five laws of stratospheric success right and law number four and i write this in the in the afterword of the book it was actually inspired by anna is the law of authenticity and the the way this stated in the book is the most valuable gift you have to offer is yourself well that's really applicable in in the the context you're talking about. Because yes, you can explain all about this fantastic nonprofit you represent, about the mission it has, and the people whose lives will be affected. But ultimately when you're sitting across the potential donor, they're buying you, right? They're they're gonna they're gonna be put off from writing that check or they're gonna be excited about writing that check, in significant part because of you, your passion for, for this project, your identification with the meaning of it, your relationship with what it is that's going on here. So, you know, it really is, it really does kind of come down to you in in such a in such a real way. You know, in relation to marriage, the thing we often say is when you work in a marriage, and this is going to sound so simple, but it's so easy to lose sight of in the heat of marital challenge. When you work in a marriage, you don't work on your marriage. You work on yourself. What that means is you don't get, you don't get to try to fix the other person. You don't get to try to adjust the dials on the other person's behavior; it's futile anyway. You can't, and if you try, you'll only make things worse. So it's you, you're really adjusting the dials in yourself, and we've talked about this already. Now that's that's the you know that's the the key strategic point of the book is that these are things you can do with yourself because you bring yourself to the marriage.
0: The good thing about it is that tends to have a ripple effect. Once we start yeah. focusing on the others and focus on our making ourselves better and the principles you mentioned and always growing and always learning. Yeah. Yeah. We start redirecting our focus. And if I can quote from the book, when you talked about what you focus on increases. All it takes is a decision. And it's a choice you make over and over. Yeah. I love that yeah. concept. It's just you start with that. You start with that decision and keep making that. And it continues. You
1: know, and as you know, in the in the second half of the book, which Anna wrote, it's called the practice. And it starts out really saying that the first chapter of that second half is called "Love is a Practice," and the idea of that is exactly what you just said. There is, it's 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 a choice you make over and over again every day. Love isn't some magical state of being that you fall into. Like we say, we fall in love which sort of implies that it has nothing to do with us. It's like, it's like a pool of water we fall into and now I'm all wet. I'm all covered with love. And that's how it feels in the start, but it doesn't stay that way because you get out and you dry off with your towel and you get dressed, you go about your life and now you don't just fall in love every day. It's a, it's a series of choices you make. It's a series of choices about how you interact with your partner, how you speak to your partner, how you behave to your partner how you treat your partner. And it's 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 a practice. It's an, it's a practical thing that you actually choose to do every day, whether or not you're conscious of it. So maybe unconscious choices, we just want to make them <laughs> conscious choices.
0: It's like a muscle. You have to keep working yeah. out to build the muscle. Yes. Exactly. If you, can, you-
2: if you can look at your marriage as an ongoing date, then you always want to do your best. You know, when people are dating, they're putting their best side forward always. And so acts of generosity in a marriage are really easy. They're not that hard, but people just get ambivalent and they get sort of on hold. and they just are going there they they become roommates instead of people who are getting closer and closer every day. And so when you start to use the secrets and you, up the generosity in the relationship, the other person not only feels it, but sometimes they because they don't know you've read the book they're going, What's going on here? you know <laughs> I mean, this feels better I'm um, <laughs> not sure what, we're, what, what what's going on, but this feels better, and they notice it, you know all of the secrets are based on developmental theory, which in, in a sense says that what you needed as an infant and as a child, you still need today as an adult, and every one of us has an 8 to 10 year old child inside of us that's still right there hoping that mom or dad says you did a really good job today you know and so when you have a partner who's appreciating you in tangible ways on a daily basis there's nothing finer than feeling like they get you and they and they witness you and they understand you
0: would you say it's really making conscious decision that the status quo is not enough
1: it is yeah and i think it's making a conscious decision to to not take anything for granted and not operate under assumptions and give you a good example of that you know when you're first in love when you're first courting or in in the, the first swirl of romance everything about your new partner is amazing and you can't say enough you can't tell her enough or tell him enough and you can't bring enough flowers or bring enough gifts or, or you know, going enough go to enough movies or whatever it is you do. It's overflowing. You can't help it. Right. It just pours out of you. After a while. Life starts to impinge. You know, you have you inevitably your attention's turned toward job and career and maybe kids and you know, the house or, or household and finances, which may go up and down, and health, which may go up and down, and circumstances, which may be horrendous. and then there's COVID, and then there's recession, and then there's inflation. All this stuff happens. And as a result, the you're dealing with all that, both of you, and you kind of put your romance and cruise control. So it's like she knows I love her. She knows I think her hair is lovely. She knows I think her eyes are amazing. She knows I really love the way she, it feels when she touches my neck. I know she uh, she knows all these things. I don't have to keep saying it. Yeah, you do. Yeah, you do. You know, there's this line in the in the schlucky old Hollywood movie love story that says, you know, love is never having to say you're sorry. Maybe it's okay for Hollywood. It doesn't play in real life because r- <laughs> real love enduring love, lasting love is you need to learn how to say, I'm sorry, in a way that's functional and that moves the conversation forward. So yeah, it's, it's, it's not assuming and not being on cruise control.
2: And and if I can add to that, because, you know, couples get into disagreements and there can be those moments where maybe you lost your temper because you were feeling anxiety. Like I I had an example recently where somebody, you know, they got into a fight and it was over something that he had done with the kids that she perceived as dangerous. It wasn't really dangerous. He really had it under control. The issue was her anxiety. So when they sat down to talk about it, she started with an apology. She said, I just want... To say, first, I'm sorry. I feel like I lost control because my anxiety got out of bounds and I couldn't control it. And you don't deserve that. And I just want you to know that I am working on this. And I really, but it hit a button in me where my fear rose so rapidly that I just, I just was terrified. And so I just need you to know know that when you do these kinds of things with the kids, I, I just, I need to know in some tangible way, even before you start, that every last safeguard's in place, that they've got, you know, things harnessed on them or whatever, because apparently he took them rock climbing or something like that. And, you know, it, it's stuff that parents do and kids do, and, yeah. you know, and he's a responsible parent, but for her, it was just took her over the edge. It was her material. It wasn't about him but she was able to own that. And that made the conversation. Okay. And he was able to say, they will never not have helmets on. I will make certain they are double strapped that will, this will, I will not take them to places that they can't manage or or stay in control of, you know? I mean, so it was, it ended up being a healthy conversation Mm -hmm. and that's the best you can do in a situation is own your own material then there's room for everybody to grow and there's room for compassion because her husband showed up as really compassionate. He got it, that she was just truly afraid. And that, that's a powerful moment between a couple.
0: And for her to recognize and be able to name that is powerful instead of yes. just lashing out, but to take him and really dig deep.
1: Which, by the way, you know, may not come naturally. That may be something right. that, that takes practice. This, you know, when we talk about doing the work and doing the practice, that's part of what we're talking about. I know that, you know, from my experience, speaking for me, I'm really good at articulating a lot of things in the world. It's one reason I'm a writer. I'm really good at articulating mm-hmm. complicated thoughts and, 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 but I'm, I am not historically good at articulating my own feelings, particularly when they're messy. And so, that that for me has been something that I have needed to work on. To kind of when I'm upset, you know, if Ivana says, you know, I see you're upset. Can you say what's going on? My first reaction tends to be, no, I can't. I can't. I, I don't. I don't feel like talking about. Well, why don't you <laughs> talk about? it? Because I don't know what's going on. All I know is I feel bad.
0: You just need to process uh, a bit first.
1: Yeah, and some sometimes because she's so allowing, because she's so gracious, and because I know that no matter what I do or where I go. It's not going to cause her to lose respect for me or feel you know bad bad about me. She's going to be holding me up no matter what, because I know that she's got my back. I may be able to have that that processing with her, have that conversation with her, and I have many times, and it's really helped me get externalized my thought process. And I hear myself talk about it out loud. And says, "Oh, okay, now I get what's going on because I just explained it out loud. I couldn't do that unless I knew she had my back, unless it was just." Rock solid. And that's, you know, that's part of the healing that a relationship, a great marriage can provide is the opportunity for us to have a partner in growing and healing.
2: Exactly. And I, I want to touch on that for just a moment because that that secret of allowing is really the secret that that addresses for better or for worse, in richer and poorer, in sickness and in health, because there's going to be moments where things are rough. And especially when one of you is upset, if you can allow for the fact and have enough differentiation and separation or individuation, if you will, to be able to allow and understand that this is his irritation, not yours, and to remember it's not about you then you can be very allowing. So in that moment, I don't try to pry and have him figure out what's going on. Often my question is something like, I can see that you're having a hard day. If there's anything I can do to make your day better, let me know. And if you do want to talk, I'm here. And that way he's just gotten seen. He's gotten witnessed. He, he feels understood because he is having a hard day in that moment but he doesn't have to process it. And I think a lot of people try to dive in to processing with their partner and that's its own invasion. And it doesn't allow for them the space that they might need just to process what they're feeling. But if you name it by saying, I can see you're having a hard day. I don't know what it's about, but if you want to talk, I'm here. And if there's anything I can do to make your day better, let me know. Um, If you want to take a walk or whatever. Then they feel like they got seen, but they don't have to explain themselves. And that's powerful.
0: You've essentially put out the welcome mat and said, you're welcome to come in when you're ready, but you haven't shoved them in the door.
2: And the same is true for children. And I I, I say this because in the nonprofit world, there's a lot of nonprofits. In fact, we did a reading in Tampa last weekend, and we met a, a gentleman that runs a nonprofit for children. And, you know, you know, kids also deserve those same breaks because a lot of times kids are put on the spot by a parent who's irritable and, you know, and they ambush them, if you will. And the kid feels really, really, you know, anxiety rises. They don't know what to say. They're trying to explain themselves. They're defending. So in a sense, when you do that to a child, you're teaching them how to be defensive in a marriage how to feel their anxiety rise just because the other person wants answers. You know, it's like these secrets apply to many relationships, even above and beyond marriage.
0: Yes. I'm thinking even just workplace dynamics within a nonprofit or within a board. Some of these things that you're saying are so applicable, just giving people space. We know the situation's frustrating, or I can see you're having a rough day. I'm here if you need to talk. Some of these same principles really apply. And what you were saying, you all seem so well established and healthy, and you're kind of on the other side of some of these difficulties. But I know there are people listening who are walking through the fire, whether in the nonprofit or in their marriage or some other relationship. And I want to encourage them that we're not striving for perfection whether it's in a relationship or in grant writing or whatever, we're striving to be better. And you said this, and you can say it better than me, but I had written down from the book, becoming perfect would mean there'd be no more room to improve and grow. In our experience, practice does not make you perfect, but it does make you better. And to me, that is so encouraging. Yeah,
2: exactly. Can I say just, just a small piece about boards? Because I've seen boards in my experience end up going at each other's throats. And I've seen people take no responsibility for an event and or for the fundraising period of time that we've allocated for the year or for pulling together an awesome website or whatever. And then I've seen other people take uber responsibility <laughs> and it and it breeds a kind of contempt. And in the one of the secrets opposite is contempt. And contempt is the moment where in any relationship, you've lost all respect for the other because they just have either folded their arms and said, "Mm -mm, not going to do it. Or, you know, they are waiting for someone else to take responsibility. And I think that, you know, and also control is one of the opposites of one of these five secrets. And control in a board is just as deadly when one or two people on a board of eight or 10 are trying to control all the dynamics and trying to hand out all the tasks and not letting people rise up in the places where they're naturally talented. It just has a deadly impact on the board. And in some ways, the director may be the person who keeps getting not only pigeonholed, but picked on because they're not able to be a class A therapist and control the dynamic of the board. Mm, um, they're in the line of fire. Exactly. Yeah. And I've seen directors get fired because a few members of the board who are very controlling decide that they're not quite fulfilling the job the way that they should be. And they're, they've come in on some really difficult budget. So the person's working for less than they're worth already. And they're wearing many hats, because you know a director of a nonprofit is wearing many hats.: Yes. So I, I say all of this because I think these five secrets apply dramatically to the dynamics of a board and to the kind of pressure the director's under. And I think that when people understand these opposites, these sort of toxic behaviors that can really get in the middle of a board or in the middle of a marriage or in the middle of a family. Because when you're criticizing your spouse, your children are watching and they're not learning good things from that. Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, if, if, yeah, I, I, I just, I I love these five habits or five secrets because I think that they teach people a lot about just how to be in the world. Even with your siblings, your parents, there's just so many relationships that these are the cornerstones of what you needed as a child and you still need them now. And even though with our parents, we've continued to be the child in the relationship, we're constantly looking up to them, but our parents have just as much insecurity as we've ever dreamed of having. So, those moments where you give them a beautiful card and you tell them what it meant that they did this or that for you, those are really powerful moments. You know, in my own experience, I I've found notes that I'd written to my mother years before that were in her bureau in, in a special place in the dresser because she had saved them because they meant that much to her. And so when you witness another person positively and you have your eyes geared to appreciating, it's so powerful.
0: That's such a good reminder. And I say that often because our home lives affect our work and our work lives affect home and it spills over into the other. And I so agree with you that these principles translate (laughs) across the board. They really do. And if we can start making them habits, like you said, then it will carry over into all the other parts of our lives. And I think really that's the goal is to help influence all of that and the people around us. It's true. And
2: at the same time, um, you know, we had a friend, an early reader who suggested that we call the book, The Go-Giver Relationship. And the reason that we didn't was that we were really focused. I mean, I've been a therapist for couples and we were very focused on it being about marriages and partly because even though the secrets apply to business, they apply to family relationships, to your parenting. We felt that that marriage was an important focus simply because in people under 30, 65% of them are getting divorced. And during the pandemic, those numbers went up dramatically. As well, there's a higher number of people after 50 getting divorced now. So people are deciding after 20-year marriage to get out. And so we felt like if the dynamic could shift there, if we could put the focus there, it's great to be able to share that it applies in other places, but there's a real need there. Mm -hmm. That this is our nonprofit, if you will. Mm
0: -hmm. True. Well, I like that you emphasize that meaningful change doesn't happen someday it happens right now today and sometimes the smallest things make the big difference especially when you do them consistently and I often say action brings clarity you need to start taking action and grant writers come to me saying I don't know where to start I have these skills or I've read these books but I have no idea where to start and yeah. I just work with them to say, start taking action, start with what you know, and take action. And it sounds like, you know, if you wait, someday I'll be a grant writer. Someday I'll do nonprofit work. Someday I'll work on my marriage when I have more time, yeah. whatever it is, it someday is too late. It needs to start today.
1: Yeah, yeah. exactly. Exactly. And it doesn't have to be some big dramatic thing, which, yes. is, which is, which is the thing that it, it can be so intimidating. It's like, oh, I, I'm going to take that on It's not even taking that on. It's doing things you already do every day, right. but just taking the left turn instead of a right turn, a little yes. bit different.
0: Yes. And, and, and you're
1: absolutely right. And you're absolutely right. It's, it's, it, it's, if you don't know what to do, take action, you can always course correct. Yes. But if you don't take action, there's no course to correct. So you're you're just sitting. You know, one of my uh, I had a, a partner in business once who who gave his his team a quiz, which was there's six frogs sitting on a lily pad, and uh, five decided to jump off. How many are left? He said, well, one is left. He said, no, 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 all six are left. The, the five only decided to jump off; they didn't actually jump yet. <laughs> um, so that you know, they said, yeah, you can decide. You can you can think I'm going to jump off this lily pad? Then you're still sitting there. And you got to do something. You can always course correct. Often, and this is interesting about, you know, um, we talk about appreciating your spouse. Often when people start to go to put this into practice and, and go to, to start putting appreciation into words, they come back and it's like, this was awkward. I felt weird. I didn't know what to say. That's okay. That's course correction. It's like, okay, I started, you know, and I'm, I was all like tongue tied and I felt like an idiot. And she's like, what, what are you talking? That's okay. It's great. You just got to mm-hmm. start just got to start. Move move the ball down the field, make some decisions, make some choices. You get to do it over again tomorrow.
0: Yes. And I'm so glad you said that. And I'm glad you're normalizing that. It's okay if it's awkward, whatever yeah. it is, whether it's at work trying to make things better, if it's at home trying to have better dynamics, it's okay.
1: As a writer, and I've I've published over 30 books, and this still happens to me, Every book. I'm starting a book right now, actually. I'm starting my third novel. I'm in the middle of starting. And it's a mess. It's always a mess. That is, when I... The first. There's a famous phrase by Ernest Hemingway, the the first draft of anything is, is crap. Well, that's generally true. I know that my first draft is confused. I don't know where I'm going. That's how I find the story, is to start somewhere, start writing, start going. And as a writer, I can just assure everybody who's listening that no matter how many times I've written a book, and you'd think I'd know what I'm doing, when I start, it's always weird. It's always awkward. I'm still finding my feet. That's how relationships are. You're always making it up fresh every day. And if you have a partner who is in any way remotely committed to you on your team, that's going to be okay because they're doing it with you.
2: And as a coach, I often tell my clients that, you know, they'll say, well, can I just put the secrets on a list here and I'll I'll just go at them myself? And it's like, well, you could do that, but you also could, you wouldn't have any accountability. So, you know, if a week goes out and you really haven't practiced appreciation more than once or twice on two days of that week, you're really not, you're not addressing it, you know? And I think that that kind of... I'm busy, ambivalence is, and also if you look at the amount of time that people look, spend on social media looking at their phone every day, you know, there's a lot of time to put little skills into action. The question is, do you want to be accountable and will you take the time to do it? And it's the same with what you mentioned earlier, which is, you know, you can't wait to write the grant writing. To do to write the grant, and I, what I want to add about that is that you can write the grant, and if you're if you're really paying attention, you're going to get some accountability. Which is take the grant and now give it to a seasoned grant writer and get their feedback. That's like that's what having a coach is. You're getting feedback on what you're doing, and you're mm-hmm. you're refining it. You're getting better and better at it. And once you really refine it, you'll find that that seasoned grant writer will have the perfect hook to put on the front of the grant. She'll have a great cover letter that's so warm and so personal. She'll take it and shape it in ways that it'll be so much better. So don't be afraid to either see a therapist or a coach or somebody who can help you stay on track with shifting the tone because shifting the tone doesn't happen just because you decide to, as John said. (laughs)
0: Right. And understanding that that feedback is to help us. It's for our own good. It might be painful. It might be uncomfortable. It probably will be, (laughs) but that's a part of the process and that's how we learn and grow.
2: It is, but I find that most people actually enjoy the process because it's never the goal of any coach to slap you around. I mean, I know high performance coaches that coach executives and they really get in there with them in a pretty assertive and aggressive way around what are they doing and how are they doing it. But when you're working with somebody emotionally, you know, this is their material. This is the place that they got wounded when they were little. You know, maybe their dad really did yell at them a lot and kind of come on as very paternalistic and very difficult and very critical. So if they're trying to take that same pattern in themselves and shift it so that they're not criticizing their wife all the time or their husband, they don't need you to criticize them. So, you know, trying to make the process. And I I think that most therapists really feel that way, that if the client spontaneously comes to some emotional content that's painful, that's kind of cathartic, but you're not going to... You're not trying to take them off the cliff before they're ready. And that's one of the things I really like to share with people is that, you know, a seasoned therapist is trying to bring you to your best self at the same time that you open up and get really, not only emotionally intelligent, but aware of yourself.
0: That goes back to what you were saying about giving them the space to process, but not forcing them if they aren't ready yet.
1: Yes. Yes.
0: In that room to do it. I love, do you want to explain, either of you, about the Japanese art that you mentioned in the book? I love that analogy.
1: Kintsugi. Yeah. The Japanese have a way of putting a word to something that's so, so. Deep a human experience, uh, yeah. Kintsugi it's a it's a Japanese form of pottery where they they take actually broken pottery, they take shards of broken pottery and glue it back together again. But you know when you glue pottery back together again, you get this like irritating like glue line, and it's always kind of and and they they take that perspective and shift it on its head and say instead of it being irritating that there's this glue line, what if we celebrate that glue line? And so what they do is they put pieces of pottery bro- that are broken. And put them back together with a lacquer that has powdered precious metals in it, like silver or gold. So that you actually see these fracture lines healed with gold. And you know, and what we what we like to say is that everybody, even if you if you look back in your childhood and it seems idyllic in 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 the rearview mirror, like my childhood was was just wonderful. You know, my parents were great and. We had a wonderful time. There's this great line in the in the movie Four Weddings and a Funeral when the 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 wealthy Hugh Grant's wealthy friend is talking about how he's decided that maybe he he's not going to find the you know, the amazing uh, woman that makes him feel like thunder and lightning is happening, but just somebody who you know finds him acceptable and they can sort of settle down. He says one of my favorite lines in the movie. He says, "You know, it worked for my parents. It worked out for my parents. Well, except for the divorce and everything." And uh, it, it, you know, I love that. I just love that line so much.
0: There's that. And
1: yeah, there, 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 is, there is that. So we may look back in our childhood and think it was totally idyllic, but the truth is none of us escapes childhood without some wounds and some fractured places. We're all broken a little bit in some ways or other. It's part of the human experience because life is difficult. Everybody's life is difficult. Yes. Now, if you experience tragedy in your life, it makes, it can make you feel like you're alone. And I can promise you, you're not <laughs> because everybody else has also experienced tragedy, whether they're conscious of it or not. And they typically are. Anyway, we have these fractures. So what the Japanese say is rather than, than, than trying to, you know, sandpaper that away, let's celebrate that. So we say that, that a relationship, a marriage can help put the pieces of you back together and that the gold, That, that mends the cracks is love. That's really what love does. That, that complete unconditional acceptance that your partner gives you that allows you to take a fresh look at your wounds and start to put them, start to put them together, put the pieces together. And I want to just add to that. It's not that your partner makes you whole. It's that your partner is a partner in the process of you making yourself whole it's really easy to slip into this sense that I can't make it without this partner you know they come like like another famous movie line right you complete me mm-hmm. it sounds lovely and romantic <laughs> but the truth is you need to complete you mm-hmm. I need to complete me it's just that my partner supplies the gold powder that allows me to do that in a way that really works mm-hmm. you know we all are born into this world alone we all die out of this world alone. But we're surrounded by love, and that love is what makes it possible for us to, you know, to progress toward toward wholeness and toward our, our ideal self. That's why the five secrets are the five secrets to lasting love. That's what the goal here is.
0: Mm-hmm. That's a beautiful analogy and a way of putting it in more tangible terms that I find very encouraging. You alluded to this, but after the last couple of years, people are just feeling overwhelmed, especially in nonprofit work. They're wearing all the hats. They're kind of exhausted. What is one next step that you would recommend for them just to give them some tangible encouragement?
2: You know, I think that the original Go-Giver book is a really powerful Statement on how you can take and shift the dynamic of your business, of your personal relationships, and of your nonprofit. And I think combined with this book, it puts both the business side of it, which a nonprofit is a business, in combination with the personal or the relationship side of it, because as you said so eloquently earlier, there's a person behind every grant that gets approved and there's a person behind every donation or every, you know, financial gift. And I think that when people really can embrace all of those components, it gives them sort of a new breath. I think that the other side to it is the last secret in our book is about growing yourself. And I think that for any director who started a nonprofit that's been a fledgling suffering nonprofit for six or seven or eight years, it's perfectly okay to sit and have that re-examination period where you decide whether or not it's got the legs to keep going. Because I think that to put so much effort into something that really is um You know, wearing so many hats and taking up so much of your time that it takes over your life and takes over your family. It's really important to either be able to ask for the support you need from the people around you, get some new board members, get some new volunteers, get, you know, keep looking for whether or not this is a viable journey, because in some cases it isn't. And I think that. I say that with the greatest compassion for marriages that have reached that place as well, because every now and then, you know, one person is really either, you know, and I don't really want to get into the topic of abuse because there's so many different facets to it, but there are times when uh, a marriage is so unequally yoked in terms of the emotional health of the two parties that it. It may be important for someone to have the support that they need to exit. And so, in the nonprofit world, I, I say that simply because, you know, beating a dead horse, so to speak, is not necessarily a healthy thing for you or for the clients that you're trying to serve either. I've seen some small nonprofits fold into bigger ones so that they could add their message to a bigger, more well developed, well financed situation. And those kinds of mergers are also something that can be really powerful. So I would read the two books, the original Go-Giver and this one, and then I would really look carefully at how are you growing yourself? How are you growing your nonprofit? And what are the ways that you're able to, to use the skills, the personal skills to to make that happen in a more fruitful way
0: in a sense you're allowing permission to explore and ask some really tough questions and making it okay to go there
2: that's how it there's a really great synopsis because that's how we really grow as john said before you know it's not about the marriage making you grow it's about having a partner who's compassionate enough To be there along on the journey while you get to grow and shift and change. You know, if you're somebody that's had anxiety for 20 years, there can be a moment where getting on a medication might be the right thing to do because it's going to shift things in a way that you can feel more at home with yourself. You know, I feel like there's not a right way or a wrong way for any situation that involves growing. But if you have the support around you for that, growth to really just be able to take off and and happen that's when it can really and tough questions are always a part of any therapy any coaching um getting down to really what's
0: it feel like john how about you what would one next step for the overwhelmed leader
1: kind of echoing what she says in a way and it meant, you know i would say first take care of yourself you know first and foremost. Do what you need to do to take care of yourself. You know, it, it's the the secret number five, the fifth secret. Every go-giver book has five secrets. And the first, we call them fingers and the thumb, right? The first four are about giving and the fifth is about receiving in some way. And, and the fifth secret in the, in the go-giver marriage is to every day, you know, l- look at what you need to become your best self look at what you need to, to move forward in your path to becoming the self that you've always wanted to be. And then find some way to give yourself that. The fifth, the fifth secret is about giving to yourself. So, you know, I would say find some way to take care of yourself. It may be something large, it may be something small. But do that first, because it's like they say in the airplanes when they're taken off, you know, if, if there's a need for oxygen, put the mask on yourself first before you put the mask on the kid. I know it sounds counterintuitive, but if you put the mask on the kid first, you're going to pass out and then you're no good to anybody. So, yep. you know, put on the oxygen mask.
2: And I have another insight about that, which is, you know, if you're always taking care of everybody else, but not taking care of yourself, ultimately you've given yourself to the nonprofit and there's, no, not, there's not any of you left. And if you try to get your needs met through the marriage, then the marriage is going to suffer because the marriage cannot fulfill your needs. So the reason why that last secret is so important is that you have to grow you. And in the growing of you, you have to survive and thrive. Because when you personally thrive, you're much more interesting in the marriage. And when you personally thrive, you have more to give to a nonprofit. So if your nonprofit is draining you to the point where you've evaporated, then that's a real point of, of reexamination. Mm-hmm.
0: That's a great reminder. And I'm afraid it's highly relevant <laughs> to a lot of people that I've talked to. That's really good advice. What is a resource that's been meaningful to each of you along the way?
1: It's just teachers, you know, for me, it's just been teachers as a writer, whether it's, you know, whether it's authors that I've read who have just taught me so much, even though we've never interacted, or in some cases, the actual teachers that I have interacted with. But teachers and mentors, I mean, for me, it's like teachers and mentors. It's been, I would say, number one. I would
2: say teachers and mentors as well, but I would also say books and resources and education. Because I am somebody who I rank very high on a Colby scale for facts and information. And um, I just can't live without understanding things. I, I, my curiosity is endless. And so education, I just have such value for education. I mean, I, I could go get two different PhDs now, you know, and love every minute of the process. So I, I find, yeah, if I only had a TV and a telephone, I would just be so bored, um, <laughs> <laughs> because I, I just, I have really deep needs to understand things, and so education is just such a primary thing for me.
0: You'd make and, a good grant writer. <laughs>
2: I actually love writing grants and I was really good at it in my day. Yeah, I love it because it has that structure of a book proposal, but it's really about the humanity of what this this grant is about, you know, and that's, I think my therapist hat is so passionate about people and their wounds. You know, every marriage, we all bring our wounds to that marriage and we all bring our wounds to work. We bring our wounds to our family. You know, I, it's just, you know, I've seen Thanksgiving dinners break out in an argument where somebody actually said, yeah, well, you were always the one that knew better than everyone else when we were kids. You know, Ouch. <laughs> I <just thought> <laughs> <myself>, wow. <"Whoa." laughs> You know, it wasn't me. It was somebody, you know, two other people interacting at the table. But I was just like blown away by the moment simply because there was a childhood wound wound just screaming across the table.
0: And it's interesting how those seem so smooth. But then when something triggers, it's right there below the surface, just ready to pop out.
2: Exactly. And I think the other thing that I'm really in favor of with nonprofits is for boards and directors to go and have retreats and i don't mean retreats where they go and play golf together and then have dinner and have some drinks i mean retreats where they get down mm-hmm. where somebody facilitates everybody having to ask a really answer a really deep question about what's wrong in their life right now or what's working in their life right now what part of being on this board isn't working for you you know, like when we can start to examine the things that are making the dysfunction happen, you'll invariably find that among 10 people, somebody knows exactly why this dysfunction has got a grip on us. Mm -hmm. And if you're all open to listening to that, you can really, it's like group therapy. For years early in my career, my first real teacher, if you will, that I worked with as a therapist, she was a senior therapist and she was brilliant. We did couples therapy groups together where, you know, six couples would be in the room. So now you got a dozen people plus two therapists facilitating. And so much would go down because one couple would start going at it while all the other couples were watching. And then we could go back to the other couples and say, well, what did you see happening here? And how does that happen in your relationship? It was like the most powerful education you could ever see couples go through. Mm -hmm. It was so deep and so real. So if boards can all drop the professional air, if you will, of who everybody is, because often there's power hitters on boards and get down to what's wrong and what's making us not function properly and really examine, but they need a facilitator. They need somebody who can be that person that's kind of weaving this, you know, what's happening here so that it doesn't break out into a fight or into, you know, name calling session. If people can do that and be authentic and honest, I think there's a lot of room for growth because I think that just like teams and corporations get dysfunctional, I think boards and nonprofits can get dysfunctional. And if they're open to looking at it, there's a lot of healing that can happen.
0: Yes. That is so true. And so important to go through that process. And like you said, it's really tough to do it internally. You really need that external. I compare it to needing a mirror. You could get ready in the morning without a mirror, but you'll look better if you have one to put those finishing touches on.
2: Exactly. Or a therapist or somebody who can be that person who's compassionate to the fact that, you know, maybe this person just had a miscarriage or they just got divorced. And they're still trying to work effectively on the board and they're kind of swallowed. Yeah. It's so if, exactly. And that's why I think our book is so powerful for everybody because nine out of 10 people or eight out of 10 people on a board are married mm-hmm. or in a relationship.
0: And whether they're married or not, these are solid principles for interaction. <laughs> and yes. If, if yeah, they're going to be in some types of relationships whether it's marriage or just at work or professional or whatever, and these are still good. And it, you know, it's interesting you mentioned teachers and mentors because essentially with the book and this whole series, you all have become mentors for so many people and such a good example of these principles yourselves that it's really inspiring.
2: Thank you for that. We, we would have to mention Bob Berg here because the original Go-Giver was written by John and Bob Berg. And they co-authored it clearly in terms of the concepts. John was a very successful businessman. And Bob has been a successful speaker and businessman as well. So they came, the concepts came together. And, you know, Bob has made it a mission to take the concepts out to the world. And we're very grateful for that because the Go Giver community <laughs> is, is yeah. very large and very alive. And the book has sold more than a million copies. And, you know, there's a lot of people in the world that love the go-giver and love the power that it brings. I think if every nonprofit, if all the people on the board read the go-giver and also this book, there'd be just a lot of people would decide to operate differently. And they would also, everybody would get a lot more alive about who the Clients are as well as who the donors are. The donors really deserve a lot of praise because they do come in and donate. And there should be special, special things. You know, I was always advocating for every nonprofit at a gala to be spending a lot of time honoring the donors because, you know, donors getting a lot of attention makes more donors want to get attention.
0: And the appreciation.
2: Exactly. Uh,
0: Exactly. I agree. And I think these principles put into words, what a lot of people feel and know that something is off or something is wrong, or they can't quite put their finger on it, but this really helps define and quantify where to focus, what needs to be worked on and what specific tangible action steps they can take that are very doable. And it really makes it a lot more practical and actionable.
2: Absolutely. we We would agree.
0: Well done. (laughs) (laughs) So tell us where people can find you online and where they can connect to either find the book or to learn more about your work and the series.
1: Well, we have a website, which is the book's website, gogivermarriage.com, gogivermarriage, all one word, dot com. And you'll find the book there. You'll find us there. You can contact us directly through that site. If you email the contact in the site, it goes right to us. The staff is us. Nobody else reads it. <laughs> so you can say whatever you want. It'll just be us listening. And the, the workshops and programs that we're doing, uh, we put them on that site as well. So there's a page called Programs, which has our, our Zoom workshop for groups that we do, as well as our, our uh, Coaches Training Program, which will be starting in the fall. Uh, as well as on as individual coaching, all this, all the services we we put together and that we'll develop in the future, they're all there in the programs page. And we have also, you know, various goodies. If you if you want to buy a book, if you don't have a copy yet, you can buy it through our site. It takes you to Amazon, Barnes and Noble, IndieBound, and so forth. But if you if you plug in the order number on our site, you get some goodies that we put together for you, some videos and and so forth. Um, so yeah, it's that's that's where you'll find us. gogivermarriage.com.
0: Very good. I love that you are setting this up in such a way to help individuals, but also creating a bigger ripple effect. That's kind of what I'm about, too, with the grants and the nonprofit work of teaching others to be more effective. And I can see this in your work, just helping make that bigger impact and influencing for good.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I, I am especially fond of our workshop called Living the Five Secrets to Lasting Love because we do a deep dive into the five secrets, but we also do a deep dive into the five toxic behaviors. Mm. So people come away from the workshop, not only really understanding, but they get that awareness where they start to say, oh, wow, I am criticizing my spouse. And we just got a little love letter from somebody this week who said, you know, when it came to appreciation, I'm really good at it with friends and family, but I realized that I was spending zero time appreciating my husband. And she said, I'm getting really intentional about it right now. And it's like magic. She said, I'm just, I'm so astonished. He's really responding because I'm just taking the time three times a day to appreciate him. And she said, I had no idea the power and I had no idea how much I really was more in a critical and criticism mode with him than I was in an appreciation mode. Mm-hmm. And she said, Thank you. It's been an eye opener. And we were like,
0: Yes. What a beautiful is- difference. Yeah. yeah. And when I was reading through, I- was thinking, ouch, you know, you think you're not so bad. Things are going pretty good. But when I looked at it a little more objectively, like, ooh, I'm not very good at some of these. And I don't appreciate <laughs> my husband as much as I should. <laughs> so yeah, it is challenging, but in a good way.
2: Yeah. And it, there's some been a lot of research on happiness that that shows that people who are givers and they, that they live longer; that every cell in their body is healthier. They have less heart disease. They have less depression, and they have less anxiety. And just to put a little statistic in place, anxiety is one of the leading, you know, things that societally we're dealing with. A lot of anxious people, and the pandemic didn't help it any.
0: Right.
2: That so, alone
0: is worth really investing the time in the principles. Yeah well done thank you so much for sharing these pearls of wisdom with us and with our audience and for your encouragement and your hard work on this
1: you are so welcome thank you thank you so much for having us
0: yeah thank you for hosting us Okay, what do you guys think? These two are great, aren't they? They are quite a pair, and I so enjoyed our conversation. I hope you will check out the Go-Giver series and the Go-Giver Marriage. It's a great book to read yourself. They're great for gifts and just quick reads, but so impactful. It's amazing how they have woven those elements together. I would love to hear how this is impacting your work and what one small thing you're going to try differently as a takeaway from this episode. Let's continue the movement and help spread the go-giver mindset around the world. All right, friends, have a great week and go change your world.